Womanjika, Hari Mai, welcome and come with purpose to the Voices of Regen podcast, a space for unapologetically bold conversation. My name is Matt Sykes, and today I'm joining uh, actually from, uh, well, very close to the banks of the Kanya Tarawane or St. Lawrence River in Montreal. Uh, so before uh, we step into this conversation around national governance for regeneration, as part of the broader market conditions for impact series. Um, I'm just going to take a moment to acknowledge the Mohawk Nation of the Iroquois Confederacy, and in, in particular, the Kanawake people uh, that have been our guests as I'm recording this uh, around the time of COP15, the UN Biodiversity Convention. Today, we're joined uh, by two guests coming from Scotland, and actually Scotland to also acknowledge each of the paths of our ancestors, uh, including my uh, my grandmother who was born in Scone. Uh, and so you might've picked up that our guests are coming from uh, Scotland. I think perhaps both in Edinburgh, we'll, we'll hear more in a, in a moment. So uh, we have uh, Michael Weatherhead, who is development lead of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, an organization that's doing some amazing work uh, and advocating and supporting uh, governments and, and regions in their transition to a more socially just and ecologically uh, aligned uh, economic model. And then we also have Gary Gillespie, one of his colleagues uh, and the Director and Chief Econo Economic Advisor of the Scottish Government uh, joining us uh, as well, and Scotland being one of the, the beacons for implementing some of the wellbeing economy principles, uh, but also leading in, in other areas as well. So it's going to be really interesting to dive in and perhaps just to set the scene a little bit. What do we mean when we're talking about national governance uh, for regeneration? We're, we are talking about the supporting conditions in terms of policy, leadership programs uh, and other factors that can produce this social, cultural, ecological and economic shift um, to a more you know, holistic uh, society and indeed form of economic development. So on that note, I'm going to pass straight across to Michael because Michael was the the bridge uh, in in meeting uh, Gary here, and um, I've I've had the opportunity to be part of a number of Wellbeing Economy Alliance uh, events, but it's really grateful uh, or great to have um, some space to talk a little bit more in depth. Michael. So, Michael, it'd be lovely to hear a little bit more about you, your organization, your role. And yeah, if there's an experience in your life um, that really is an example or a symbol of regeneration for you, over to you. Otherwise, thanks very much, Matt. Um, so, yeah, as you said, I'm the development lead of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. It's a really useful title because it basically doesn't really describe anything specific. It allows you to do kind of everything, which is what I've kind of been doing since we co-founded the organization back in 2018. So before then, I was uh, with the New Economics Foundation, which is a London-based think tank. I joined them to set up their consulting arm. Uh, and before even that, uh, an ODI fellow working as an economist in the Caribbean. Um, but um, I would say my, my sort of, the, the, so there's, a, there's a clearly an economic thread running through uh, all of those positions. Um, we'll talk in more as the podcast goes on as to why we all does what it does. Um, 
But in terms of a story of regeneration, um, I think I'll probably go back to what may be the very beginning of my economic journey, which was when I used to get taken along to church by my parents, uh, which wasn't super thrilling for me. But what I did enjoy about it was that my dad used to run the tradecraft store. So tradecraft was the fair trade store. So uh, I sort of um, I learned to to apply Christian guilt in, in the selling of dried apricots uh, to the various uh, attendees of the church. And, and why I say that was a, a, a sort of a, an example, a personal story about rehabilitation was that it sort of gave me a faith that economics or trade could be done differently. And very interestingly, about 20 years later, so I mean, I was only young, eight or nine years old, sort of selling these dried apricots. Um, I actually um, went and did some work in northern Pakistan where those apricots were from and actually saw the rehabilitative effects of fair trade on some of the villages in northern Pakistan. And so, you know, I think that's possibly what, what began sort of my journey, if you like, on, on this path. Yeah, we've we've got an expression uh, the out of Australia in one of our songs. I'm not sure if it if it translates, but it's uh, from little things, big things grow. So it's interesting to picture uh, you working there at a um, you know small community based um, you know trade stand, and then now scaling up um, to looking uh, more broadly. Uh, super super inspiring. Uh, okay, Gary, welcome. It'd be fantastic to hear, um, yeah, more about you. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks very much, Martin. It's a pleasure to be to join you both on this. So uh, my name's Gary Gillespie. Uh, a bit like Michael, been an economist most of my life and really interested in economics and economic systems from an early age. Uh, I'm based in Glasgow, brought up in Glasgow, seen quite a lot of change in Glasgow in, the, in my uh, early career, early youth. In fact, the 1980s, quite a, a tough depression, recession, and really interested in understanding how economic systems really from that age uh, impact in people's lives. So studied economics at university, did a master's, a PhD, became a, an academic for a period, and then joined government in uh, 2000. I joined the Scottish Parliament a year after the, sorry, the Scottish Government, a year after the Scottish Parliament had been formed. And I'm really interested in um, how you apply economics and public policy. That was really the driver for what, what really interested me. I've been in government now 22 years, uh, 11 years as Chief Economic Advisor. So really um, great job, fascinating job. You get to work in all real life issues, everything that's impacting the economy of Scotland. So it really keeps 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 me of interest in what is a great job. On your question about regeneration, so regeneration kind of fascinates me as an academic. I looked at regional policy, how we regenerated different areas, but probably going back to my um, early roots in the north of Glasgow, um, quite an industrial area. But the thing about Scotland is beautiful countryside and nature and within a mile or so you could be out in the countryside and we we had a, a canal quite nearby so it was a traditional uh, canal built um, 18th 19th century as part of the industrial revolution at that time for transporting goods and we used to go to the canal and you could cycle along the canal 
that canal now is fully regenerated. It's community owned. They're still investing in it. They've put a new bridge across it. They just opened last week, linking a new community in Glasgow. So it was pretty grim when I was young, but it was a kind of symbol of how you can take back a beautiful area of nature now. It's well used for people to walk in. And it's a kind of a really potent symbol of a regeneration in Scotland. And the other thing that uh, the canal gave us a path was into the countryside. So I do a lot of cycling and enjoy getting out and about. So regeneration is really important to me in that context. Yeah, thank you for sharing, uh, Gary. It, uh, just picking up on a couple of things that you, you shared, uh, well, I guess creating a bridge between the two, talking about the canal, talking about, you know, the the, the space of the church and the, the, you know, the market that was attached to that. They're quite, you know, localised community, you know, uh, spaces which then become grounding points. It's so interesting when we go back to some of, I guess, where we come from and the principles that then become bedded later in our work. But it seems like there was a there was a couple of things in what you shared, Gary, around that transition from the depression to then trying to work out that journey, you know, out of it um, for the for the country and the role of economics uh, playing in that and making a bridge perhaps to the time that we're living in in this kind of post-COVID uh, type uh, era and the opportunities that present themselves uh, ahead. So, yeah, thank you very much, um, both of you, for, for sharing those. I guess with that grounding, it would be great to start to dive into this concept more of national governance for re regeneration. And perhaps just before we do that, I wanted to share some of the, the themes that we've covered in this podcast series so far just to give it uh, context so we've looked at impact procurement we've looked at organizational governance for impact impact investment impact reporting and storytelling and also more recently natural capital accounting so there's a number of layers and and things that no doubt will will come up at, perhaps in different ways in this conversation but when we do scale it up at the national level um, Gary, I'm going to pass it straight back to, to you. What are some of the unique ways that Scotland uh, is approaching its economic development and, and budgeting and specifically with that social and environmental uh, focus? Yeah, no, thanks very much. So, so in Scotland, we talk very much about transition to a well-being economy. So that's touching on uh, economic, social, environmental well-being, obviously including nature and biodiversity. So that's the kind of umbrella framework for the government. And really, if you look at the if you look at the current climate that we're in, or the current impact we're in, we're dealing with multiple crises at the moment. Uh, you're obviously in Montreal at COP15, biodiversity loss. We've just recently had COP27, and we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis within. Scotland and the UK at the moment, which is having a real material impact on people's well-being. So the so the the notion of kind of people, planet, uh, community, uh, how you respond to events is really central to a lot of how we look at things in Scotland. The role of public services, the role of kind of person-centred services, and how you respond to that. And in the specific context of budget and what we're doing, we actually have a budget this week on Thursday, which will set out the budget for 
for next year. And within that budget, there'll be key themes around kind of linked to the wellbeing economy, really around protecting people's wellbeing, the environment, cost of living, child poverty, the kind of key themes that are there at the moment. So in that context, I think um, Scotland, probably in my lifetime, has always had a stronger community feel in the context of uh, people understand community and that and the importance of that. I mean, some specific things we're doing, the, the Scottish Government, the Scottish Parliament, there's Community Wealth Building Act, um, looking at how we can enhance community wealth building within local areas. Um, we just, as a circular economy bill about kind of recycling, the just transition is a massive issue for us in Scotland, uh, how we develop that in line with our, our net zero commitments to 2045. We have a future generations bill that's that will put a public duty on um, the public sector around sustainable development in Scotland. Um, you mentioned procurement. We also ha have conditionality in procurement when you get government support around the conditions of, of support. Uh, recently, we had a, a business purpose commission looking at the role of business and how that can enhance communities. So there's, I suppose there's a lot going on over a lot of um, space, but I think getting back to the importance of regeneration, um, does it, there's a real kind of challenge for us in how we connect up the economic, social, and environmental in a meaningful way. And I think um, whether it's regeneration, whether it's well-being, whether it's um, whatever, that's the challenge that the governments face about how you bring those together in a way that essentially balances them in a way. And that's why I like about the well-being approach. It brings that it brings that together in that context. I mean, we've published a wellbeing economy monitor in Scotland um, earlier this year. We just updated it last week. So it's a broader seizure, sorry, a broader sweep of measures that give a flow of what what matters to people in Scotland. So that's I think that's quite important context. Um, we're doing a lot in the wellbeing front, but but we're not world leaders in it. We have a lot of wellbeing challenges in Scotland as well. So I think we come at it from a perspective of being modest, but ambitious around what's important for the government and Scotland. And finally, I suppose, um, it's part of a broader narrative um, in terms of how we view the economy. What's the, what's the end goal for, for a successful economy? And if you're interested, our First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, did a, a TED Talk in 2019 where she makes a case for why wellbeing should be a core economic objective for countries. And, and actually, it's, it's worth the nine minutes if your listeners are interested in getting a flavour of uh, why Scotland's on this journey. Absolutely. We'd love to include that in the as a link uh, in the follow-up um, because, yeah, these these little stepping stones that, that spin out of the podcast, uh, you know, are really important to continue the conversation and really grateful uh, for the way that you walk through that seemingly uh, so easily, uh, Gary, in outlining some of those examples, the 
Future Generations Bill and the Business Purpose Commission are two things that perhaps we can come back to in a moment and dive a bit deeper. But um, yeah, all of those, you know, talked about Just Transition and Community Wealth Building Act, all of these uh, as initiatives that are starting to move the energy towards the well-being uh, economy, and I think the way that you position that in saying, you know, we're not we're not perfect at this, we don't have it all together, but we're setting out on that journey. I think that uh, humbleness, that that pragmatism, is probably something that's uh, encouraging for people because so often people, uh, particularly larger organisations, including governments, you know, are overwhelmed by the or can be overwhelmed by these things, and so you know, getting started. Um, can be uh, a tough, uh, a tough ask. But Michael, I'd like to, like to pass back uh, to you because, fortunately, what's happening in Scotland is is now not internationally uh, rare. There are a number of governments that are really coming through uh, and starting to shift the focus. I wonder if you might be able to share um, some of the the broader context of Scotland's work in the relationship to these other wellbeing economy hubs and. Um, well-being economy governments that are popping up around the world and uh, no doubt that this you know this stands on the foundations of previous movements as well but passing across to you. Yeah no thanks Matt. Um, I think what was really interesting about what Gary was describing there is there's lots of different framings there's pathways there's different ways of calling what are you know ultimately all in service of moving to an economy that is in service of well-being so you know future generations circular economy community wealth building um they all have a place in the well-being economy uh, lexicon um because they share the same values at the end of the day this is a different values-based system and i think you know that's what the governments are to be applauded for in the yes they're not there yet scotland's not perfect you could also say and, and ministers have said there's an implementation gap you know there is a need to go from rhetoric to action but there is an intention and a direction of travel which needs to be recognized and celebrated because you know, there aren't that many examples around the world of this type of thing. And I think WeGo, which is the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership, of which the Scottish Government was one of the founding members, together with New Zealand and Iceland, is one of those exemplars, um, which I think creates great interest around the world. Now, um, over the last couple of years, those three have been joined also by uh, Finland and Wales, and Canada is an active participant uh, together with those five core members of WeGo. And, you know, they are reframing uh, how we think about indicator sets, how we think about budgets, and it's getting interest. I mean, just take, for example, I was in New York last week and I was uh, with others together with the New York City Comptroller. So I had to look up that, uh, that title as well, but it's basically the Chief Financial Officer. New York City has the largest municipal budget of any in the United States, $95 billion per annum. That's bigger than the budget of the Scottish government. And I was in conversation with him about WeGo and what is taking place there. And he was really interested, you know, in this framing. You know, this guy controls a huge budget. And to show that there is the possibility that you can use that to catalyze a different way of doing economics in your locality was he was all ears for that 
You know, so the fact that we have this exemplar that we can show to people, even if it's not perfect, it gives people the, uh, it makes them feel brave enough to take that first step, I think. And that's really, really important. So, you know, it's sort of the, the symbol it, it, it offers as much as the actual practical actions, those within the, 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 the partnership are starting to move forward um, is, is, is what's so, so good about it. Yeah, I I think oh, firstly that that bridge that you gave um, between the scale of New York, you know, as an as relatively a, a small island, but then the scale of Scotland, and then talking about the ways that, of course, the principles um, translate, but the different scales of action and implementation and planning uh, that we're talking about here, we uh, we have another episode coming uh, out shortly around. I guess, regional superpowers for impact. So looking at the unique positioning of different places, considering their uh, expertise in tackling specific social and environmental issues through business and, and economics. And I guess just noting that, yeah, this movement is happening at all of those uh, different levels, but the power of benchmarks, the power of flagships, the power of e examples is, is so vital and even yesterday in the business and biodiversity forum here um, there was the conversation around the differences in the business culture of older generations of business that are happening at the moment and those younger generations that are coming through with purpose with regeneration with well-being built into their dna and then these others that are retrofitting and having to realign that are from the older generation. So all of these things are, are happening uh, simultaneously and they're all important. And I guess when we start to look and cross-reference, everything is very much connected and responsive to culture and place and it, and it needs to be. Um, but when we see the examples in one region, we, we can learn. And, it, and it's great to hear the connections in Canada as well, because I think some of that's felt you know, through what's happening uh, here at COP. Let's dive a little bit deeper. Let's talk about some of the specific um, policy and governance um, mechanisms that are that are being practiced and uh, and mapped out here. And some of them, you know, quite quite new and 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 progressive. Gary, if we can circle back to a couple that you shared before, and as I flagged before, the Future Generations Bill and the Business Purpose Commission each jumped out, but I would really welcome, you know, any exploration of those and the others that you mentioned, uh, really probably starting to drill down into the, the mechanics of them and, and show, you know, how they came about and, and what their intentions are and some of the impacts if, if you're starting to see those uh, manifest as well. Yeah, no, great, and happy to come in on that. Maybe, maybe just before I go into them, picking up on some of the points that you mentioned there and Michael mentioned about the wellbeing economy governments, I suppose it provides a collaborative space for governments to share in a, a way that maybe we wouldn't necessarily have done, share ideas and policies, and a and a kind of private space that allows us to to kind of try and do, but the. It's an interesting thread around the, the wellbeing economy governments in that they both share a number of characteristics that they tend to have performance frameworks that are that wider than GDP, 
Um, and actually there's, in the engagement that we've had since really 2018 when it's launched, um, it's amazing the similarities between the countries and the issues that we're dealing with. So you can, and I think that talks to your point, Matt, about you can actually, um, you can look at policies in one particular area and um, translate or transmit them into a different environment. So it's been really, really powerful for that context. We obviously all dealt with COVID, so there's a lot of similarities there, all dealing with uh, issues around climate, just transition, nature, um, and also other child poverty, also dealing with issues such as uh, how we deal with um, tourism in your economy over over use of tourism. So a lot of kind of commonalities across across those themes. I think coming back to your questions around specific examples um, and drilling into particular policies. The the, the, bus, the Business Purpose Commission was a, a commission that was led by an industry body in Scotland called the Scottish Council for Development and Industry. It's a, it's a particular kind of collection of uh, organisations within Scotland. And that was really delving into kind of the issues that you mentioned about what we're seeing with a lot of purpose-led businesses across the world, the importance of purpose, both in terms of uh, the sustainability of the businesses, what they give back, and the evidence that's emerging around how much more successful purpose-led businesses are. So the that report concluded earlier this year with a set of recommendations for the government, which we are now looking at and taking forward. The Circular Economy Bill, again, was much more about kind of moving from this linear production system to look at how we can really kind of bring production back in terms of uh, our recycling within that, within that context. I, I mentioned the just transition. Uh, we're really looking at developing sectoral plans for our carbon intensive industries and thinking about how we can help that transition in a way that supports people and local communities that are within that particular area. We have a we have an oil and gas sector in Scotland in the northeast. We have a, a real focus on that transition to net zero and how we can support that and generate kind of future energy that's that's stronger and based on the renewable um, opportunities that we have in Scotland, uh, offshore winds, and uh, hydrogen, different kind of for uh, different opportunities um, in oil. And I think you mentioned also procurement, as I mentioned earlier, around conditionality. But natural capital is really important to us as well. You know, she just did a podcast on that. Um, we started, we have natural capital accounts for Scotland now, uh, which we, across the, the different elements, we have a, we, and, and that's really been, that's really important to us in the sense of uh, how you bring the kind of nature-based solutions into a lot of the climate issues and looking at the value of nature, people in restoration, how we use our land and how the land is part of the transition that's required for the economy. It's really hard to, to pick any one type of policy and say, well, that's more important than the other, because it's really, I mean, you're trying to change a system here and it's everything kind of contributes to it. So, I mean, that's been one of the particular challenges. 
if I, if I go back to the well-being economy governments, uh, Iceland are particularly strong in a number of areas. Um, gender, well-being have really progressive policies, um, and it's led out of the their their participation in the well-being economy governments is led out of the Prime Minister's office. So really strong in terms of that government's focus. New Zealand is led out of the Treasury. So the New Zealand Treasury do a lot in um, looking at wellbeing budgets. They just published a report uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, a wellbeing assessment of the wellbeing of of citizens in New Zealand. So a kind of an annual report that they'd have to do now as part of the of the Treasury. Uh, Michael mentioned Finland. It's led out of their health and social care uh, department. So coming at it from a different perspective, but obviously uh, uh, very linked. Wales, very focused in their Future Generations team. The Future Generations Commission Act that is part of Wales, uh, again, driven very closely to the First Minister. Um, and Canada um, recently published a quality of life framework Again, looking at how they can use metrics better to understand their own well-being and impacts. And in Scotland, it originates back to really looking at a different approach to the economy and trying to move the our economic narrative to one that, as Michael described, um, moves the the economy from being about uh, jobs to actually what's the impact of the economy on people's lives and well-being. And so. All of that um, really contributes to to the approaches, and in Scotland, so I, I talk about well-being within the economy lens, but we've got well-being policies, obviously in education, health, justice. So it's really that fusion of policies. But the one thing I would say is, you need to, what you measure matters, <laughs> and that, and that, and in a sense, you've got to set yourself some. Um, targets, so you've got to kind of measure a broader sweep of things um, to understand really the impact across that. Otherwise, you won't change change the system. And the final thing before I hand back is there's something about culture and an understanding as well. And the challenge I think around the well-being focus and well-being economy is making it real for people, so that people really understand what what the impact of change will be on their lives. Brilliant. Thank you, Gary. That was, uh, yeah, a, a brilliant dive into Scotland's picture, but also to to look at some of the other localizations in the other uh, well-being uh, economy government areas. And I think when you when you walk through it like that and you're talking about the housing, the positioning of uh, this work within relation to specific governments or just just a, a couple of examples there you talked about you know uh, in Iceland that it's being let out of the PM's office uh, in New Zealand being let out of the treasury it shows the positioning the interface but also perhaps there's flexibility here you know there's quite a, a broad spread in the way that those were localizing but um, I, yeah, well, I guess we can't take it away from your one of your key comments around it being systemic. You know, it's it's not one set of policies, it's not one department. It's really about that whole system. 
And I guess on that note, um, Michael, you know, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance has published a number of papers and and guiding tools and principles to help, um, you know, policymakers design and embed these things and trying to take things perhaps that are traditionally in silos out and focus on the interrelationships. I'm just wondering, are there some of the key points or principles um, when you're you're mapping out and you're working with governments and you're trying to make that delineation between a, a traditional financial you know budget or operational system opposed to a well-being budget that you you try to emphasize because it feels like we're we're managing this balancing act here we're in a, a state of <laughs> divestment um, but also investment in new markets and new potential simultaneously yeah, no, absolutely, Matt. Um, I mean, you know, traditionally, and, and Gary's alluded to this already, you know, government budget analysis really focuses on, on assessing impacts on a limited set of economic outcomes, you know, GDP, inflation, unemployment, this kind of stuff. But the trouble is this narrow focus, you know, kind of disregards many of the outcomes that matter to societal and ecological well-being. You know, the core aim of the well-being budget is to broaden the framework for budget decision-making from that narrow focus on economic outcomes to really a more holistic, comprehensive framing of societal and ecological well-being. So, you know, using evidence, um, societal well-being evidence across all of its domains and dimensions as the kind of basis for defining government priorities, uh, you know, this really does help, I think, to governments to focus their attention and resources on, on the things that matter most um, for greater societal well-being, you know, now and in the future. And, and, and Gary picked up, on, uh, I want to pick up on a couple of points. Um, the, the quality of life framework in Canada, I think it has meaning and purpose as one of its components. You know, this is, this is, a, this is pretty big that they're looking to actually think about, well, it's not just the jobs, you know, what is the quality, the meaning and the purpose of the type of work that we're trying to, trying to create? That's quite out there you know, as, as these things go. And, and, and on the Iceland point, Gary mentioned about gender, gender-based budgeting. You know, they did a lot of work. They spent two years really trying to imagine and, 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 and consult and look at what budgeting would look like if uh, it, it went through a gender lens. Um, and once they'd undertaken that, they sort of, you could recognize that the sort of investments that budgets allocate as, you know, investment spending, so physical infrastructure, bridges and roads, you know, these are very male dominated occupations, whereas social um, sort of expenditure, be that, you know, in health or care or education, um, that wasn't treated as an investment, that was women's work, you know, and, and considered expenditure. And, and it's a big difference when you're looking at budgets, when you're thinking about investment versus expenditure and, and through therefore applying that different lens they could look at and think about these social health education sectors more as investments rather than as 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 simply expenditure which you know when you start to think of things in investment terms as purely expenditure terms then you start to sort of look at where you spend your money and, and and by all accounts in Iceland you know it allowed certain legislation and budgeting decisions to move through the process which wouldn't have done so if they hadn't applied that lens and reimagined this type of spending as investment um, in fact 
Now, I mean, on the holistic point, we did a, a, a piece of research, um, I think it was last year or so, it's called failure demand. And it looked at existing data, so nothing new, but just repackaging existing data from various statistical departments, both in Scotland and also in Canada, and looking at um, the level of spending that these respective governments had to undertake to offset the you know dysfunctional nature of paid work or housing you know i i, I always sort of look at, at, at the concept of tax credits governments needing to pay to top up wages because people who are in work are in poverty it, it's it seems mind-blowing that an economy is, is is producing work which is below poverty levels and government needs to sort of top it up and and there's something wrong with that system and, and, and through that work, and also through, through, through health and, and, and housing, looking at the, the housing sector, one could see the interplay of health and housing and education and employment, and how so many components of the budget are interlinked and need to be thought of more holistically, because you might have a housing budget, but you know, poor housing results in health, big health and negative health implications. But, you know, unless the housing and the health are speaking to each other and looking to create policies which actually have the win-win of, of improving the housing and thus the health of those residents in that housing, you know, you're still going to keep coming up against a decent chunk of those budgets needing to be spent, in effect, repairing the negative externalities that come from, you know, an, a suboptimal way of an economic sector working, if you like. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, and I'm, we, we might kind of go off on a bit of a tangent here for a, a, a moment, because I think what you're talking about, the interconnection between housing, health, education, all of these different factors. Um, Gary, I would love to pass back to you. When you're starting as, an, as any organisation, in this case, the national government is going through this transition, Inevitably, it calls us to work in new ways and to perhaps, you know, break down some of the silos or, or, or open new conversations that might not have happened before. Just practically, you know, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you navigate those interconnections between departments? And uh, is an example that comes to mind of the way that you and your colleagues across a couple of um, different areas may, may now work that was different to before yeah no it's a really good good question i think um the points michael made i think around uh, early intervention and kind of like the benefits of that are really positive i suppose our mantra probably in government so for current um cabinet secretary for finance finance and economy was speaking he would say there's there's not one department in government that can solve the problem on its own. So we need that join up, as Michael said, whether it's health, housing, education, social care, justice, whatever. So we need that join up. And I suppose within government, so we purposely produce, for instance, uh, maybe the child poverty plans, probably the, the best example of a cross government plan that has, um, has our social security, the child, child payment, as part of that, has education, has childcare, has employability, the support for people within the workplace, has policies around the real living wage, and looks at the drivers and impacts of child poverty. 
and a holistic way and brings together those policies and ensures that they're kind of funded and joined up. So that's maybe one example. But there's something, I think, in Michael's um, explanation about how you deliver public services as well. So within our national performance framework and the purpose, there's a big theme about kindness. And we did a survey around that, around how people want to be treated and dignity came out really strongly. Um, if you were looking for a, an example of a policy, I think um, I would look at the PROMISE, which is a shorthand for uh, the review of looked after children in Scotland, which uh, was informed by those that had lived and experienced the care system and came out with the recommendations that they, they wanted in terms of how they were treated within the system. So it's really, I think, um, in terms of how you work differently, it's certainly across government you have to work differently, but it's about focusing on what people, the solutions that people are looking for in their lives, often they know better than government and it's and how you do that is different. Let me give you one example. Uh, sometimes bringing together kind of areas, it's easier at a place-based dimension. So whether you're talking about a community or a particular area, because people know the strengths and opportunities within their areas. We recently completed a, a pilot programme in an area of Scotland, Clackmanager, and we were looking to pilot a wellbeing economy approach to economic development within the local authority. It brought in all of its local uh, players. And we've just really published that as a guide now for our for other areas to, to kind of look at. And what the reason why these approaches are different is in a sense is there's no one unique solution. What's different in one community is a negative or a positive in another community. So it's very much about uh, providing the environment and the join up so that people um, can often get to the solutions and be part of the solutions rather than rather than the other way about. So, so it's a challenge for government how you think about traditionally department budgets, uh, how um, your role within departments and really achieve the system change in the in the kind of broader objective. There's got to be that join up. And I think the New Zealand example of the kind of wellbeing budget, Iceland has done that as well, about picking maybe four or five high level objectives and framing the budget around that approach. It's really kind of fo forcing the kind of join up of the resources and such. So I think there's loads of uh, examples going on in Scotland, across the UK and other legal countries and in other countries, Michael's, the work that Michael does bringing forward examples of uh, really pioneering work in communities across all areas of the world is really, um, really positive in that grasp. But from a government perspective, it's about letting go. It's about kind of not having top down solutions it's about engaging with what people need, want, and providing the framework for those solutions to, to emerge and recognising that will be different in different areas. So if you were if you want to try this somewhere, start on a place, start on a smaller scale. And and I think that I think that that is a way to maybe get into it in a way that enables you to break down the barriers. So we published that study for Collect Manager. And we're just about to publish um, um, 
a local economic kind of toolkit around the wellbeing economy monitor as well to help our other areas of Scotland also. Brilliant. Yeah, I just love the, the openness of sharing uh, through example and, and case study here. It feels like that that generosity, that kindness, the, you know, these are different words that perhaps when people are talking about the economy, uh, uh, yeah, not, not traditional, but it's, it's, um, it's really encouraging and it makes so much in intuitive sense. Uh, I, I feel like we're starting to shift towards um, our future gaze here. So, so let's lean into that. And, and Michael, I'm going to come to you, you know, you mentioned, a different kinds of infrastructure that are being built built through the well-being uh, economy um things that are not you know that you know traditional masculine bridges or nation building infrastructure in that way but perhaps quite different so when you look towards the future what kinds of infrastructure do you imagine and where do you take inspiration as you you look into that crystal ball or or probably you know more felt knowledge and and wisdom um well i i already take in, inspiration from things that that have happened in the past um you you mentioned earlier in one of your questions matt about or you said that we all um had created many briefing papers and and it's true i mean i didn't say this at the beginning but um generally what we do is we look to synthesize and curate existing ideas and solutions um, but that is not enough in and of itself we also create hopeful new narratives um, about what the economic system can can look like and, and what the purpose of the economy could be both of these in effect kind of acting like roots of a tree supporting new power bases such as the well-being economy governance partnership amongst others we also have hubs and citizens who are engaged as well but you know one of those papers um which has been really i think an instrumental paper is is the policy design guide and it has many different dimensions for how you go about the process of designing um well-being economy policies but it's also full of case studies you know it has case studies from bolivia to barcelona from from utah in the western united states to wales you know all of them looking at different elements of the process of creating first that vision of a well-being economy before actually move, moving through in a sort of co-production way. And, and Gary alluded to that with, with the promise, you know, the engagement of young people, not in lip service, not just consulting with, but actually having them inform in a very deep way the structure of the system that they want to see in the future. You know, using that lived experience to inform the design um, is, is critical, and there are, it's peppered with with wonderful examples of that. But in terms of also future infrastructure, I'll give a shout out for a really interesting program that we're beginning um, at the beginning of next year, and it's called the Global Wellbeing Economy Program. And what we're looking to do there is we're looking to bring together. Um, many visionary thinkers, many from um, the Global South and also from Indigenous knowledge, to reframe what the international economic architecture might look like before then starting to backcast and map that to existing institutions, multilateral institutions. And it may well be the case that many or some of those institutions are not fit for purpose for achieving that broader vision. 
of what the global economic architecture should look like. And it may be that new formations, new groupings, new institutions um, need to, to, to be birthed in order to fulfill that vision, if you like. So, you know, just a, a, a look out for, for any of your listeners, just to do keep abreast of the We All website, very easy, weall.org, to, to, to see how that program of work evolves and develops, um, because it'll conclude with many, many members and movements and allies coming together to prioritize what they want to advocate for in terms of those new structures, if you like, to, to bring forward at the global level a well-being, a set of well-being economies. Mm, that's super inspiring, particularly um, acknowledging those First Nations and other diverse cultural perspectives in this, because it feels like in, in our work where we're navigating, you know, this bridging of uh, First Nations knowledge and and uh, and other perspectives from diverse cultures into a more of a main in the existing mainstream Western system, and that's also taking play here at, at COP15, where uh, the voices of of younger people are, are really standing up, um, the voices of First Nations people and and also young First Nations people, uh, really challenging and really coming through from a, a different perspective. So. It's great that there are spaces being created like this for those dialogues to take place because often it requires a colleague shares this phrase of um, radical listening, Jonathan, uh, and they're working very deeply with Indigenous communities and it requires, you know, us to to challenge some of our, uh, our notions. So, yeah, really excited uh, for that to come out. Gary, I'm going to pass to you uh, as we... Uh, just allow a moment to look towards the future. What are you taking inspiration from? What do you see? Yeah, no, so a great question. I suppose I see the journey continuing. I see a great uh, interest in this different approach. I see a kind of building of a, a consensus. I can see different policies across different areas. So I suppose I see momentum and I think I see uh, different voices coming into play and I see a realisation that actually to solve a lot of the problems we've got, we've got to do it in a way that's different. Uh, I think at the start of this, I talked about the kind of number of crises that we, we, we faced over recent periods and then coming together and how we have to do that differently. Uh, the wellbeing economy governments we met just recently in Glasgow, just two or three weeks ago. Um, so that journey is continuing. Um, we're open to kind of participate and share with other countries. As I said, we, we don't have all the answers, but it's a, a collaboration that we hope to kind of build and share going forward. We always been a great supporter. Michael mentioned his policy design guide. We actually use that in the Clack Manager um, pilot. So again, we've all got something to contribute to this. So. Um, it's a system. A system will get to a tipping point, and hopefully, we'll see the we'll see that come through and come through much much quicker. But so I'm optimistic, particularly with younger people and the younger people's voices that are coming through in this. So um, keep up the good work, keep up the podcasts, and keep sharing the experience and the, the challenges that we face. Yeah, thank you, Gary. Absolutely, I think that that sense of being on the journey together is is galvanizing and it's something that 
Uh, although this podcast will come out in the very beginning of 2023, um, you know, grounding where we are, COP15, the momentum and energy circling around, it is great to just see so many like minds, people from so many different cultures and countries around the world who just have that shared sense of care. You know, there's differences in the way that negotiations are taking place and it gets right down to the nitty gritty of specific phrasings and specific policies and it can loop, find ourselves looping around. But the commonality of that, this shared awareness about the importance of, in this case, of nature and in the broader context of this conversation, uh, the well-being economy. Um, we are on this journey together. It's important to, that we carry on. So I guess I just wanted to... Um, uh, just start to wrap up and, and pass back to you if there's any one one key message that you have uh, to people, professionals, policymakers, decision makers that will kick off uh, 2023 and just one small tip that they have. But we've gone on quite a, a, a journey here. We've started by looking at your childhood experiences from the canal to the dried apricots. We've then stepped through, you know, at a very high level, some of the ways that Scotland and other regions are approaching uh, this well-being uh, economy and these enabling conditions. We've gone in into very practical uh, policy and 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 governments uh, mechanisms from uh, you know this ideas of net zero circular economy bill, uh, all of these different uh, aspects, uh, and now starting to to look towards the future. Michael, is there one? Um, key take-home message that you would have for professionals, decision makers kicking off 2023 that they should keep uh, front of mind? Mm, um, I think, yeah, there is. And I'm going to, um, it, I'm going to take it from uh, your podcast partner in crime, uh, Pedro Tarak, who is one of our trustees. And it's a wonderful phrase. And he mentioned to it, to me very early on in our journey and we very much adopted it and it is togetherness over agreement you know we we can't get too stuck in the weeds and not move forward and and maintain the momentum that Gary mentioned simply because we're getting stuck on small details the togetherness is what is so important if we are all um all the actors who want this move to a more socially just environmentally harmonious economy to come to fruition together over togetherness over agreement is is critical gary how about you yeah no that's a lovely saying michael and i think that's very true i think that we share more commonality than anything for me i don't i don't know in my own personal um i, I heard a speaker a number of years ago who said something like every contact or touch leaves a trace. And that's always stuck with me. And any engagement I have or how I can I try and interact with people or place I think about what kind of trace or what experience you're leaving with people. So I think, again, in a system perspective um, for people, start a conversation, think about your own impact, what you're doing, what your purpose is, how you're trying to change things. and. Uh, you will leave a positive trace. That's the that, that's my message to you. Together over agreement, every contact leaves a trace. There we have it. National governance for regeneration and considering um, 
very much a deep dive here of well-being economic uh, economics gary and michael I want to thank you both so much for the generosity of your time and and sharing your experience uh and really uh confident and excited about this being um yeah a source of inspiration i see that people can pick up early in 2023 to carry into their work on that note uh, we'll wrap up this Voices of Regen podcast and keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. Uh, this is starting to, to create um, the closing of this market conditions for impact series. All righty. Thanks so much again, gents, and look forward to whatever 2023 uh, may bring for us. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks, Paul. It's great to talk to you.